Shalom, and thank you for listening to our podcast. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, the president and dean of Valley Beit Midrash. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning, bringing cutting-edge ideas and innovative and pluralistic Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider making a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and enjoy the program. Word of introduction, last week we spoke about the soul in this world, how it functions in this world, what its purpose is in this world. Uh, we ended up by speaking about the pop theory, if you remember the map, pop map. Today, I want to transition to uh, how the soul, or at least how Judaism believes the soul functions, not in this world, but in the next world. And what our relationship is with those souls, those souls that move on to the next world. Um, and again, I'd like to reiterate that if there's any questions, ideas, comments, let's make this much more of a study, a true study, than anything else, to use the expression of the Talmud, or chavruta, or mituta, which in Aramaic means either you have a chavruta, a partner in study, or you have death, mituta, death. So let's make this come alive today and uh, choose Chavruta, please. Again, I welcome your comments, questions, disagreements, and so on. Uh, so speaking about the soul in afterlife, I'll begin with uh, just a short anecdote about this man who um, uh, was approached by his boss and said, uh, his boss said, I have an important question to ask you. Do you believe in the afterlife? And the man said to his boss, yes, of course I do. He said, okay, that explains why when yesterday you took off because of your grandmother's funeral, she showed up here to say hello to you. (laughs) But that's believing in the afterlife. Now, it's not that type of afterlife that I'd like to speak about, but whether Judaism believes in the afterlife or not, the answer to that is yes, a resounding yes. Now, not because anyone was there and visited the afterlife and visited those souls that are roaming around, but because uh, we have prophets, we have many texts, including Kabbalistic texts, like the Tsar that we mentioned so many times last uh, week, that really speak of the afterlife, speak of the soul, speak of its infinity, of its eternal life. And that is really what I'd like to explore together with you today. So to, to really go to that type of journey, to the journey of the soul, Towards the afterlife, we first have to speak of the transition between this world and the next world. And uh, I think the best way uh, this transition can be described is um, a a transition of not just worlds, but I think it's a transition of universes. It's not like moving from the United States of America to South South Africa, but it's rather like moving from 
the United States of America to the moon, to Mars, <laughs> to Israel. <laughs> Something like that. That's right. Maybe that's more accurate. But it's a whole different world that the soul finds itself in. And that is also why it is so hard for the soul to leave the body. Because it's going to a place unknown. To a place in which now it has to readjust its perspective, its understanding, its knowledge, its connection in general. And therefore, the Tsar describes that it is so hard for the soul to depart from the body. That's one reason for that difficulty. The other reason for the difficulty is also because the soul and the body act like uh, marriage. The soul is married to the body. The body is married to the soul. And this marriage may be a dysfunctional marriage, or it may be a very good, happy marriage. Sometimes the soul and the body can work beautifully together. I think in holy people, it's a beautiful marriage. Nonetheless, when the soul leaves this world, it has to divorce itself from its body. And that marriage no longer exists. It thinks it exists for a little bit, like we'll see. But practically speaking, it no longer exists. The soul finds itself alone. And therefore, it is so difficult for the soul to transition to the next world, not because it's in Mars, not just because it's in Mars or in Israel, but also because it now has to act in a way that it has really never acted before or has never acted in a very long time, alone. And therefore, again, the Tsar says that it's very hard for the soul to separate itself from the body. But let's read further. Let's read what the Tsar has to say about this transition. Let's go to the, straight to the second reference. Does anyone want to read? The second reference from the top. Please. Anyone? Observe that when a man is on his deathbed, and at the point of departing for the other world, three messengers are sent to him, and he sees what other men cannot see in this world. That day is a day of heavenly judgment, in which the king demands back his deposit. Happy is the man who can restore the deposit just as it was given to him. Right. So uh, he sees that which cannot usually be seen. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but people on their that, that deathbeds, I've heard this many times uh, at hospices and other places, they are shown their entire lives and they see their lives. They see everything that they've ever experienced. Do they convey that to you? Uh, yes, many times, many times. Uh, and they think of their childhood, they think of all sorts of occurrences in their lives that maybe have remained dormant in them, in their minds, for so long. Yet at that moment, all of a sudden, those dormant experiences are awakened. Now, the Tsar, I think, speaks of that very common uh, experience that people have on their deathbeds, where they see that which cannot see, they see their entire life. But I think, I think this also relates to something else. And maybe it explains a Mishnah that might not seem connected, but it's very much connected to this transition and to that which the person sees just before this transition. There's a beautiful Mishnah in the Ethics of Our Fathers that says that a person should repent a day before he dies. Shuv yom echad lifnei mitatach. Now what does that mean? Every day, right? We don't know when we'll die. So what does it mean? So repent every day. Does that mean that we have to be depressed every day? Oh, maybe tomorrow is my, my end. But what it really means is that we should adopt the same perspective that the Zohar right here is speaking about. A perspective in which we look at life in the, in the grand scale of things. See, so when I, when I 
think that I might die tomorrow, and I'm driving down the street, and someone cuts me, if I'm dying, I'm not going to waste my energy now on getting angry at this person. Fine. All right. He cut me. I'll continue on forward. If someone somehow delivers a knee-jerk reaction towards me and towards my loved ones, but tomorrow I'm dying, am I going to waste all of my energy on this person what he said? Life is so much greater than that. That's the perspective we have at the very end of our lives. Unfortunately, it's the perspective that many have only at the very end of their lives. But why not adopt this perspective every day we live? And I think this is also why this topic about the soul and the afterlife can teach so much, not just about the afterlife, but also about the way to live. I believe it is at Oxford there is an anatomy department, and the entrance to that anatomy department says the following, this is where death can teach us about life. In a way, this is where the afterlife can teach us about life. It's to inherit this perspective. You know, it always amazes me, and as a rabbi, unfortunately, I have to attend many funerals. Uh, it always amazes me that at every funeral I've been to, thus far at least, uh, maybe, maybe it will change, but every, at every funeral I've been to thus far, the eulogies have been filled with praises, only good things. Now, I wonder, what happened to the crooks? What happened to the schmendricks and the schleim muzzles? They don't die? I've never heard a person go up at a eulogy and say, oh, this guy was a schmendrick. He was an idiot. What happened to them? Or do people turn into angels once they die? And I think the answer is very simple. No, people don't change when they die. We change when people die. Our perspective changes. We're not stuck in the trivial, stupid things of life. We look at the person in his entirety or in, his, her, in her entirety. We see the entire picture. And then we can see the good. We can see the positive in others. But in a way, this is the perspective that we have during this transition. Why does it happen during this, this transition? Because during this transition, our body fails us. And what we have left really is our soul. And we become more and more in tune with that soul. And let me tell you, the perspective of the soul is the perspective of God. And therefore, it is a good perspective. And that good perspective means that we're able to see the good in others, even when sometimes we also see other trivial things, but they're trivial. And therefore, we're able to see the light, the good, the positivity in others. Uh, that's the perspective of the soul. And that's the perspective we have as the soul is becoming more and more dominant uh, during this transition. Yes? The three messengers that come, are these, like, who are they? I mean, are they people that the person knows or people that they don't know? Or? It's a good question. It's a good question. Who are those three messengers was the question. Um, I, I'm not sure. I'm really not sure. Uh, I know the Zohar speaks of three messenger, messengers that um, um, Abraham encountered after performing that uh, mitzvah of inviting guests in his home, and they were actually angels. There were three angels there, right? And these three angels really represent the three blessings, general blessings of God. Angel Gabriel is the angel of justice, but good justice, like saying no to your child when no is uh, supposed to be said. That's, that's good. And then there's the angel of kindness, Michael, 
which is the angel of saying yes to your child when yes is supposed to be said. And then you have the angel of Raphael, which was the third angel that also came to visit Abraham, which is the angel of healing or that smoothens the way. Any bumps, any ailments are uh, completely eradicated by him because that's his task. So it might be those three angels that accompany a person along the journeys of life and along this journey too. But I don't know. It could be ancestors, your own ancestors. It could be angels in the purest state. Good question. Just to conclude this, this short introduction about this transition, the ethics of our fathers puts it best. And I think also if we can really internalize these words, we can adopt this perspective on life, which is a soulful perspective, a good perspective. Does anyone want to read? The third reference from the top of the page. Ethics of our fathers, 416. Right. So remember, this world is but a vestibule. You don't have to focus too much on the coarseness of this world, even on the materialism of this world. You, you, you are so much more than that. You are a soul. And at the end of life, we become more and more aware of that. And we just hope that it's not too late. Now, speaking about this transition, it does state very clearly that there are really three stages to this transition, three general stages. There's level one, level two, and level three. Now, these three stages are really the foundation of the way Jews mourn. After uh, the passing of a person, there are three stages of mourning based on those three levels. You have the shiva, right, which is the more severe type of mourning where you sit and you mourn and all sorts of customs. And then you have the other stage, which is the stage of the shloshim, right? You, you wait until the 30th day. And then you have some of the customs that remain, the morning customs that remain. And then you have the 11 months uh, or the year, the yard site, in which you still say Kaddish. Most of the morning customs are already gone by then. But that's that third level of morning. It's based on the three levels of separation between the soul and the body. The soul, because it was married to the body for so long, it, it has a tough time separating from from the body, so it separates quickly, uh, uh, it separates slowly, sorry. Um, I will say there are exceptions to that, and we'll, we'll touch upon that a little bit. <clears throat> but two exceptions, two main exceptions. Uh, first, the righteous. The righteous were soulful people in this world. They weren't people who were guided by their bodies or by their bodily needs. And therefore, when they have to separate from the body, it's not a big deal. Hillel the elder, who was uh, really one of the great Jewish sages, is uh, famous for saying that one should uh, love peace, pursue peace, love even people or just creatures or have a tabriot. Um, but Hillel, what, the way he used to relate to his body, just, just to give you an example, is that when he used to go to the restroom, or when he used to go and take a shower, you know what he would say? you would say, I'm going to perform an act of kindness to this miserable, miserable one. In Hebrew, this miserable body. So, <laughs> no, I mentioned this today. <laughs> but, uh, so these, these people that are righteous are soulful beings, and therefore it's easier for them to separate from their bodies. The other exception is young babies. Babies who haven't been married with their body for so long are, are, don't have 
the difficulty that uh, an average soul would have that was here in this world for a much longer period of time. The, the destination of their transition is the same. Their, the smoothness of their journey is not the same. For them, it's much smoother, if that's what you're asking. Or the short life that they have, that's what they review. That's right. That's right. That's right. I will touch upon this a little more soon. But uh, let's speak about this transition and those three levels. Level one, who wants to read this Midrash again? Um, Speak about level one. That speaks about level one. Please, Randy. The soul hovers over the body for at least three days after death. The human soul is somewhat lost and confused between death and before burial. <coughs> it stays in the general vicinity of the body until the body is interred. The Shomrim sit and read aloud comforting psalms during the time that they are watching the body. This serves as a comfort for the spirit of the departed who is in transition. Shomrim are prohibited from eating, drinking, or smoking in the Shemira room out of respect for the dead who can no longer do these things. Okay, very good. Uh, Shomrim, let me just define Shomrim. It is a custom. Uh, many of you uh, may know it. None better than Gerald. I'm sure he can explain to you what a Shomer is better than I could. But a Shomer is someone that really guards the body. That's what Shomer means, to guard, a guardian. It's someone that guards the body immediately after the passing, until the actual funeral. The reason there is a Shomer is exactly as described here, is in order to guard the body and to, uh, and to almost uh, comfort the soul that is hovering upon the body, saying, oh, what am I doing? And then it sees that someone is saying some prayers. So it comforts the soul because prayers are the language of the soul. Someone is there taking care of my body, taking care of my entity, and I'm now more comforted. That's what, uh, more or less what the soul says to itself. And therefore, the Shomers also have to be very careful about eating, drinking, and so on, how to comport themselves over there, because the soul, we really believe, watches. Yes, Kana. So, I have actually my friend asking. Uh, so, like, we're supposed to bury somebody within 24 hours. We, say that again? When, like in Israel, they bury a person right away, mm-hmm. the same day. Yeah. So that, that's a good point, and we'll, we'll touch upon that a little bit. Uh, uh, but uh, yes, th- preferably one should bury uh, his beloved as soon as possible. Right. Why? Because once the soul, again, that is hovering upon the body, sees that the body is now resting, it can rest. Huh. It was married. This is like its partner, remember? So, so it's not in comfort and complete rest until the body is, is, is rest itself. So, so that's why I think we accelerate that process, Khanna. Um, once that's performed, then we can go to level two and level three and so on. Does that answer the question? Yeah, so the body, if the body is buried, the soul still hovers? The soul then can move on. Okay. Soul can so move on then to the next level. Yes, that's correct. Well... Well, okay, so good point. So the at least three days speaks of uh, the, the, the soul, the general hover of the soul upon the body. Let's read the next. I want to I read the next level, and that will touch upon that because it's connected to this. Uh, the hovering is connected to that. Okay, level two, and I'll, I'll get back to that, I promise you. Let's go. 
Level two, Zohar one. Yes, please. Right. So all seven days of mourning, which begin from the burial, and that's why this answers your question. But yeah, from the burial. The, the shiva begins from the burial. So not from the day of passing, from the moment of passing, but from the burial. Uh, all those days of shiva, the seven days of mourning, the soul is there. It's hovering. It doesn't exactly know. It takes time again for the soul to understand that, gosh, I'm without a body. So it says, am I part of this? Am I not part of this? Reminds me of my teenagers at home. Am I an adult or am I a child? Who, who am I? That's with your exception. You're an adult for sure. <laughs> no, seriously. But, but am, who am I? That's the big question. Now, the soul goes to the grave during those three days and also during the shiva. Back and forth. Now, there are levels of... of uh, recognition of awareness that the soul itself experiences. And there is a difference between, for example, the first three days of mourning of Shiva and the last four, three days of Shiva. Um, the first three days of Shiva, the soul is still pondering this question very heavily. After three days, there's a click there. It says, oh, I'm probably not a soul, uh, uh, body and soul uh, marriage anymore. I'm just a soul. And then it rises to another level of awareness. And eventually it can depart altogether from the body, as we'll soon see. But that's the Shiva. Yes? So I have a question. So my father, Allah Shalom, he passed away on the second day of Pesach. Mm -hmm. So he couldn't sit Shiva until after the holiday was over. Yeah. So what happens? It's a good question. Yeah. During, so during holidays, we don't sit Shiva. Um, Passover, Sukkot. Um, one doesn't sit shiva because the importance of the celebration of the festival and of the community far supersedes the individual loss. That's how much we believe in community in Judaism. And uh, community is probably the most important idea in Judaism. Uh, working together. We said ochevruta omituta at the beginning. That's true for community. Chevruta also means connection. And therefore, community, even, even, even the individual loss is, is cited um, because of, of community. Now, what happens to the soul then? It still hovers. This time, uh, it doesn't go to the Shiva house, but it goes to the festival house. It's still there. So we're having the Seder. You have the Seder, and the soul is there. That's the belief. That's correct. Yeah. Level three. Level 3, Zohar 2, the very bottom reference uh, on the first page. This is the third level of transition, of separation. Let's go. Yes, please, Julie. All those 30 days, the soul and the body are judged as one, and thus the soul is found below. After that, the soul departs and the body erodes in the earth. Right. So all those 30 days, the soul is judged is together with the body. So that still creates somewhat of a link between the soul and the body because they judge together. The soul might have uh, risen to the level of awareness that it is not a body anymore, that it has no connection to its body, but because they are judging as one, there's still a link there, and therefore still a connection. Now, the, the, 
mind of the soul is not there, so to speak, because it understands that it's not a body, but the history of the soul and the body is still there, and therefore there is still a link between the soul and the body. Once that judgment is over, that link goes. And once that link goes, then the soul understands finally that it is completely free from a body, completely alone. Yes? So what happens in the case of a person who's been cremated? And you're asking, I wanted to touch upon that at the very end, but uh, we'll say a few words about this now. Yes, you're right. Judaism doesn't believe in cremation. It doesn't believe in cremation partially because of this mystical reason that it hurts the soul when it sees its body that was its partner burnt, um, but also because the body's not ours. The body's not ours. It's God's. And we can't decide to do something with, uh, if this cup is not mine, I'm not even allowed to touch it. Uh, we're against cremation now. Does that mean that the soul and, uh, is, is punished uh, or something like that? Not at all. Not at all. Um, the soul is the soul. Okay, no connection to its body. It pains the soul, no doubt. But it doesn't mean that the soul is, has to suffer a punishment or anything like that. I'll take it a step further. Uh, you know, six million Jews were burnt in the Holocaust. So does that mean that they are punished? God forbid. God forbid. They're the holiest of holies. They uh, are named in the words of the Talmud, Harugay <coughs> Malchut, which is a term given only for the holiest, uh, holiest of Jews. So that's, that's where it is. Okay. Um, level... So that's level three with the judgment. And then part of that level three is that level four where there's no judgment anymore. Therefore, that link between the body and soul, the final link that was left is gone. And then the soul for 12 months does this. This is the next reference here on the very top of the page, of the second page. You can flip the page. It's a double-sided page here. Please. Right, so it's still there, not because now it's connected to its body. It doesn't say that it ascends and descends to its body, but rather that ascends and descends to its family, to its environment, to, to the place that it, it was familiar with for so long. Um, you know, it's interesting, again, uh, when we leave home, when we go to college, in Israel, they leave home much earlier. It depends on the country you live in. But here, I would say, when you go to college, you still have this attachment to your home. You've left your home. You've, you've made a decision to go live elsewhere. But you still come back. Why? Because you're still very attached to it emotionally and on other levels. Same here with the soul. It's still attached to its life here on earth. So it goes back and forth. Or at least that's the belief in the Talmud and in the Zohar. Now, after those 12 months... Just like after a year of college, two years of college, you understand, all right, my emotional attachment is not as prevalent as it was before. I can move on with life. The soul moves on to the next world fully and becomes a full inhabitant of that world. It leaves this world. Now, does that mean that the soul never comes back? No. Does that mean that the soul doesn't uh, send signals to its loved ones? Not at all. It does. But it's not in the form of coming back because I'm emotionally attached to, to the place, but rather to the physical place, right? 
but because I'm mostly attached to the souls. Souls are souls. Souls that leave can still be connected to souls that remain. They can't be, as mentioned here, connected to the physical aspect that is found in this world because it understands that that's not it. But it can be connected to the souls in this world because it's still soul to, a soul-to-soul connection. You understand what I'm saying? So the love, the soulful connection, the, the, the connection, the bond forever remains because it's a soul-to-soul one. The soul to the body, the soul to this world, the soul to its home, the soul to its country, to its culture, that goes after 12 months. But the soul-to-soul forever remains, and therefore the soul can still send signals, communications to uh, people that remain here on earth. We'll speak a little more about this, but let's first understand now where the soul goes to after those 12 months. What does it mean that it becomes a full inhabitant of the next world. What does it experience there? How does the soul react to what it experiences there? And for that, uh, we have to speak about uh, the judgment of the soul and the three stages that occur until finally it can reach paradise. Now, I will, I will say this, that, okay, let's, you know what, let's, let's, let's read the Zohar and then I'll say what I have to say. Judgment... And three stages, reference number one, Zohar 2, 199a. Who wants to read that reference? Diana, you were about to read. Let's go. Then three appointed messengers descend upon the man. One of them makes a record of all the good deeds and the misdeeds that he has performed in this world. Mm-hmm. One casts up the reckoning of his days, and the third is the one who accompanied the man from the time when he was in his mother's womb. Right. These are, it's not the three... And let's not confuse those with the three angels that are by the uh, deathbed. The, this is after the passing. After the passing, it might be the same angels. It might be different sets of angels. But then you have angels that have to do that. Now, in a way, you know what, I'll say this before even we look at the references. But in a way, a person uh, the, that goes, a soul that moves on to the afterlife has to face judgment for its, its uh, actions in this world. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. I certainly am. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. And therefore, it is shown somewhat of a movie of its life. Okay. Now, it's not that if a person lived for 120 years, he has to sit there for 120 years and watch a movie of his life because, uh, remember, all of this is abstract. It's, it's, it's the heavenly spheres. It's beyond time, beyond space. But a person is shown a movie of his life. That's what this judgment is about. That's what this recording of deeds is about. That's what it sees. Now, each time a person sees wrongdoings that he or she performed, It pains the soul. It embarrasses the soul in a way. Why? Because a person is looking at those wrongdoings now from a soulful, from a divine perspective, where he or she knows now the very strong difference between good and bad. So when he sees bad, he says, gosh, I should have never done that. It's almost like when you go to school and you have to complete tests and then you get your test back by the teacher and then you go over your answers and you realize, gosh, 
I have the strong answer. I should have known better. Why did I write that? It's the same idea. The soul sees its, a movie of its life and says, oh, no, why? I should have known better. It pains the soul. By the way, that pain is what we Jews call hell. Hell is not where they burn you with fire and you have people beating you and whipping you and so on. Not at all. That's an abstract world. You can't have that. It doesn't even make sense to say that. Hell is where you are in pain. Pain from what? From what you, the wrongdoings you've, you've done in this world. Now you can understand that they're wrong and therefore embarrasses you. Now, it's not there to punish you. Hell is not there to punish you. That pain is not there as a source of punishment. Rather, that pain is there in order to cleanse you. It's almost like, like bleach on a stain. It comes to, to take away that stain that came from the wrongdoing. So that now you can be ready for the next level. So it's not there as a punishment. It's just there as a, maybe as a source of cleaning. Yes? Uh, excellent question. How does saying Kaddish help to all of this? Because we say Kaddish for a loved one for this main reason, in order to elevate the soul and to, to make it move forward so that it doesn't have to suffer through this pain. How does it help? Because of the message of Kaddish. It's interesting. I, was, uh, I actually uh, brought the text of the Kaddish here at the very end. Because it's interesting, the, if you want to look at that text, you'll see that the Kaddish doesn't have the word death. The word death is not mentioned in Kaddish. Why so? You're speaking about death. It's said when a person dies. Why isn't the word death not mentioned? Not only that. The notion of death, the notion of passing, is not mentioned in the Kaddish. Gadalvit Kaddash Rabbah means, may God's name be angredized, exalted. And it refers, your, the answer to your question is exactly what um, connects us to the exact message of the Kaddish. The Kaddish is there. Why do we say Kaddish when a person dies? That is because the immediate response to death that we ought to have is to increase God's name in the world, to do even more good. Why so? Because we recognize that there's a good person that is now missing. So it's our duty to fill in that void by doing even more good. Let's let God's name be angerized so that it fills that vacuum through us. When we say Kaddish, it's not just the saying of the Kaddish that elevates the soul. It's the good deeds that are done on behalf of the soul that elevate the soul. The good deeds that are inspired by this notion of the Kaddish, by the message of the Kaddish. And when the soul sees, oh, I've left something in this world, good deeds in this world, people are so inspired by me then that brings even more light, even more goodness to the soul and it allows it to elevate itself even from the pain that it might be experiencing through the sins that it is seeing. So, so it's not just the words of the Kaddish. People have to recognize that. I mean, yes, we say Kaddish for 11 months, but that Kaddish shouldn't be left just in the verbal world. It should be translated into action. Chaim Weizmann famously said that after Hitler murdered a third of our nation... It is incumbent upon every Jew to be a third more Jewish. What does that mean? That you have to do one more, a third more Jewish deeds that you've done until now. Why? To make up of the, on the third of Jews that were lost in the Holocaust. Makes total sense. But that's the Jewish response to death. And 
when the soul sees that it has inspired so many actions, it gets tremendous joy, tremendous pleasure from that. That's why I've never understood. If you, looked at the, if you look at the text of the Yizkor, and it seems so cruel. Uh, you say, well, may God remember the soul of so-and-so because we will contribute to charity in her memory or in his memory. Right? Remember that text? Now is the time to solicit uh, people. They're mourning. They, they're sad. You're going to ask for money for charity now? Is there something more cruel that you can think of? But the answer is very simple. What we're doing is that we're responding to death with deeds of charity, deeds of kindness. That's the only response, according to Judaism. Why? Because that brings tremendous pleasure and joy to the soul when it sees that it left a legacy of goodness. It's elevated. So that's, that's really why we say Kaddish. Yes, it helps the pain. By the way, I will say this as a side note, and that is that sins or wrongdoings that one performed but did teshuva on those sins, if you ask for forgiveness, if you took all the proper steps of teshuva, which is not just asking for forgiveness, and just, not just having remorse, but also when you are tempted to do the same thing, you don't do it again. That's true teshuva. Then God doesn't show that to you. Then it's erased from your record. It's not you anymore. They don't define you. you you've passed that test. They, they, they drop out of your image. Yes, Randy. So let's say a, a young child dies and, and the parents you know, continue to connect with that child's soul for 50, 60, 70 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. So is that soul, while, while the parents are still alive, does that soul sometimes leave that other world and come down and go into a different body so that the soul is still not up there, but it's in another body while these people are still trying to connect with them. So if that soul comes back to this world, if a soul comes back, a soul of our deceased, of our beloved ones, uh, a beloved one comes back to this world, can we still connect to it? Right. Because it's not there anymore, so it's trapped in a body, so to speak. It's a good question. Uh, We mentioned last week that a part of the soul doesn't come back. There's always a part of our soul that remains up there. We called it the GPS last week. So one can connect to that part of the soul because that's not trapped in the body. It will never be. The part of the soul that is in the body, it's a different story. Uh, I think souls can still send signals even if they're trapped in the body. That's why, I really think that's why, sometimes you meet someone that you really never met. Yet you feel a click. And you connect immediately. You become best friends. You don't know who the guy is. Never seen him before. But something he's created there. Why? Maybe that's that type of soul. Souls find a way to reconnect to their loved ones even when they're here in bodies in this world. So it's easier, of course, to connect to the upper soul, to the GPS. But the souls that are in this world still find a way. Yes. Good question. That's an excellent question. Is God still making new souls? Or are all the souls, or including ours, are they all recycled souls? 
the belief of Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, the foremost Kabbalist of Tzfat in the 1600s, uh, was that we are all recycled souls. Um, it might be an exception to that year and there, in this generation, that generation. But uh, we're all reincarnations. And we'll speak about reincarnation at the very end. Uh, what? Created during Bereshit. Created during Bereshit, that's right. Created even before Bereshit. So then let me ask you a question. Yes. So, if everything was created in six days. Yeah, the souls were created before six days, before the... So we're talking about 12 months, so what is a month? How long is a day in each month? <laughs> How long is a day in each month? <laughs> All right, fine. Uh, I'll let you answer that question. All right. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> All right, but back to the soul, back to the next world. So again, uh, the, it is judged. It is judged in the way that it is shown a movie of its life. The second stage, that's the first stage, that judgment, the movie. The second stage that it has forced to look at the wrongdoings, but that is there, that observation is there to cleanse the soul. It creates pain and embarrassment for the soul, but it cleanses the soul. By, as mentioned, the wrongdoings that we did to Shuvan are not shown to us. And then the third stage is the stage of paradise, in which the soul basks in the light of God. And because it's a soul, because it only desires soulful pleasures, it derives much pleasure from the source of all souls, God. Now, what I mean by soulful pleasures, I, don't know, I know it's hard to explain this in a world in which most pleasures are defined in a very physical way, uh, from ice cream pleasures to uh, sexual pleasures and so on. Those are bodily pleasures. Soulful pleasures, maybe the good examples in this world, are uh, music. Not uh, Metallica, please. And not rap. <laughs> Reggae. Uh, but music, uh, classic, class, classical music. Okay, that's my opinion. You can name any music you want. Uh, but music is a soulful pleasure. No doubt. So imagine that you are in this most amazing concerto played by uh, Yitzhak Perman, Yo-Yoma, and uh, Chick Corea. <laughs> it's a nice combination, isn't it? <laughs> they and you are basking in that pleasure. Is, wouldn't that be amazing? Yes. So, so that's the soulful pleasure that paradise is. Now, of course, much more than that, because it doesn't have the impediment of the body. It can really liberate itself, set itself free. So it's much more than that. And just as it is in this world, you have different levels of soulful pleasure. So too it is in the next world. In paradise, you have different levels of soulful pleasure. The more refined the soul is, the higher the, the pleasure it can derive. And that's why we speak of the elevation of the soul, right? We say the iluyin neshama, that the soul should have an ascent. Have you heard of that before, that expression? What does that mean, an ascent? An ascent in pleasure. It's time for it to, since it's now even more refined, it's time for it to elevate. Now, God is infinite, and therefore the levels of pleasure are also infinite. 
But that's, that's what we believe is paradise. Paradise is not where you lie on a couch and have a good ice cream and the weather is, is Arizonian in the winter, not in the summer. That's, uh, again, too physical for, for, uh, for our logic. Um, but that's stage three. Let, let, let's, let's skip this page. I mean, the stages are well described with the references. But I do want to get to reincarnation and the big question of, and then what? Reincarnation that was touched upon, and then the then what question of really how to deal with death. Uh, what do we think souls do in order to communicate with us here in this world? Um, and all these big questions. So first reincarnation, yes. We do believe that most souls are old souls. We each are a reincarnation. Now, why is it important to believe that? Why does Judaism even speak about it? Uh, we're in a Jewish uh, studies class or in a Buddhist study class? We're in Jewish studies, yes, and we do speak about reincarnation because, in a way, when we reincarnated, we are reincarnated not just as pure souls, but as souls with memories. As souls, if you want to use the computer language, with chips, with the hardware that already has a bunch of files. And those memories should be able to guide us in our mission in life. And um, I think many people know what their weaknesses are and their strengths are. And that knowledge often comes from memories that we've uh, uh, carried from past lives. Uh, I want to jump to one letter and then we'll come back to the very top. But let's, let's jump to the letter of Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Igrot Kodesh, Rabbi Schneerson was uh, the late Lubavitch Rebbe that passed away some 25 years ago. And here he writes a letter... And I will say this, I know some people have heard me say this again, but I would encourage you to take upon yourself this custom. Um, lately I've been reading, uh, for the past year, yes, there's thousands of them, I've been reading these letters before going to sleep at night. Why am I telling you something so personal? Not because I like to share my personal life. My wife does a good enough job with that, so uh, uh, regarding my personal life, not her personal life, but... Um, uh, because I think the way you go to sleep at night is the way you wake up in the morning. If you go to sleep like a dog, you wake up like a dog. If you go to sleep like a lion, you wake up like a lion. If you go to sleep in a good mood, you wake up in a good mood, most cases. If you go to sleep fighting with your spouse, you'll wake up fighting with your spouse, and that will be the way you'll remain most day unless you can overcome your strong emotions. So I go to sleep by reading uh, some words of holiness. And hopefully that makes me wake up a little more holier in the morning. It doesn't always work. But, um, so I've been reading these letters, and not, not too long ago, I discovered this letter by Rabbi Schneerson, who uncharacteristically, he, he does something that, that speaks to the very essence of reincarnation. He writes to this man who is complaining that he doesn't get along with his wife. And Rabbi Schneerson answers uh, as follows. Let's, let's read this reference. Again, it's the fourth reference from the top of the third page. Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. You tell me. Does anyone want to read? Stuart, go for it. You tell me you are giving the proper amount of tzedakah. However, your shalom bayit, harmony and marriage situation, needs great improvement. The fact that you're having great difficulties in this area is a sign that this mitzvah has not been completed in your previous life. The Holy Arizal teaches us that most souls living in a body have been there before. 
The reason they come again is to fulfill those mitzvot that they did not do properly the first time around. Those mitzvot that they did complete in their previous lifetime do not require any more refinement. Therefore, their observance is easy. However, those mitzvot that one did not complete in a previous lifetime are the ones most difficult to do. The negative inclination targets these non-completed mitzvot as the ones to oppose most. The fact the issue of shalom bayit is so difficult for you proves that it is a mitzvah which needs fulfillment. In your past lifetime, you did not refine this mitzvah. Now is your opportunity. Yeah, now you have to understand this is very, I mean, from what I've read about the Lubavitcher Rebbe, it's so not characteristic of him because he was a very pragmatic man. But again, he speaks of this notion of reincarnation in this specific context because that's why we speak of reincarnation. That's why we believe in reincarnation. That's why we ought to speak about reincarnation because we ought to understand that sometimes the weaknesses we have in this life really are there because in the previous lives we weren't good at them. Now is a chance to rectify them. And maybe the weaknesses should show, should indicate at least the type of soul that we had in a previous life and encourage us to act uh, upon them in order to, to rectify them, strengthen them, and eventually even transform them into strengths. Yes? Do all facets of Jewish people believe in reincarnation? This is the first time I've ever heard of it. I've heard other rabbis, especially back east, say almost the contrary. So I'm, I'm confused right now. Up until now, I thought Shirley McLean was crazy. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, well, the simple answer is yes, of course. We do believe in reincarnation. Um, and I think that it's, it's a pity. The reason, the reason many believe otherwise, I believe, is because it's not taught. It's a subject that's avoided. It's not taught. Uh, I understand why. Christians speak about the afterlife from yet to tomorrow. Uh, Buddhists do the same thing. Hindus do the same thing. Why doesn't Judaism speak about it? So you can say yes, because we emphasize life. We emphasize the celebration of life. That's what we focus on. But then we are left with the whole part of our knowledge that is left empty. Um, so we don't speak about it. But uh, look, these are sources. Again, I, as I mentioned, it's not like someone has been up there and come back and said, hey, this is the way it is. And uh, this is the address in which my loved ones live in, uh, in the upper worlds and so on. There's a movie like that, I know. Um, forget the characters, but, uh, but that's not real life. Now, on the other hand, these words, these texts, are based on uh, prophecies. I do believe that there were prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, you name them. They're all based on them. Ezekiel speaks of reincarnation himself uh, in chapter 30, 31. Uh, so they're based on the prophets. They're based on the Zohar, which was authored some 2,000 years ago by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who we believe had that, uh, you know, that, that holy vision. And it's based, again, on, on uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria and others, the Kabbalists of the 16th century. Um, but we do believe that. We really do believe it. In fact, uh, we believe it so strongly that Maimonides, who was a very rational man, he was a doctor. He was a man, if you read his work, uh, you won't even think for a second that he was somewhat of a Kabbalist. Very pragmatic. His magnum opus was the, a book of Jewish law, law, pure law. 
Maimonides includes reincarnation and resurrection as one of the 13 principles of faith. That's how strongly he believes in it, we believe in it. Uh, it's part of the principles of faith. As coming from Maimonides, we have to take things into, the, into consideration. Yeah. Yes. So this, uh, kind of, this kind of begs the question. So let's say the soul has come back 200 times each time to correct mitzvot that it hadn't done in a previous lifetime. Can it reach a point where it becomes a pure soul that doesn't need to be reincarnated? I mean, I don't know how you reach that point because I don't think anybody can perform all the mitzvot. Well, yeah, uh, I don't know if we come back 200 times. That's more of a Buddhist uh, uh, well, a type of belief. Yes, you're right. We come back a few times. I think you can count them on one hand. Uh, that's the Jewish belief, so I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, and could they, no, God, that's, God believes in second chances and in third chances and in fourth chances. Um, so, so we'll come back as much as we need to come back. That's the general belief. Shmuel. Right. Right. I wasn't talked about. I understand. I mean, look, it's not. It's not something that is completely intellectual and logical and rational. It's not. But I think that's the beauty of Jewish faith. Jewish faith does not mean that you have to be naive. Jewish faith means that when you have exhausted all intellectual options, that's when you have to believe. We've exhausted all intellectual options. Some of them are included in, in the prophecies. And then we believe. Then we have faith. And therefore, Maimonides formulated 13 principles of faith to give us... Uh, uh, you know that that direction that the faith our faith needs to have, um, but I'm glad you brought it up. It's a good point. It's a good point. And um, what I draw from your question most is that this is something we should be teaching to our children. I teach it to my children. I teach it. I teach at Pardes Jewish Day School. I teach it even there. Uh, I teach it in many other places. To I think it needs to be taught. Really needs to be taught. Going back to what he said. Yeah. I don't know which. Religion it is, but they believe you come back until you until you're perfect. And then when you're perfect, you're in one with God, and then you go to heaven. That's what they teach. Well, what does perfect mean? Um, perfect means uh, they probably interpret the word perfect differently. But perfect means that you've accomplished your mission, right? right? But that you've rectified that which you needed to rectify. If, if again your soul is a is a reincarnation. Um, that's what it means. Okay, yeah, and then you're one with God. I think we're one with God in this world. I think we're one with God each time we do a good deed. And what does that mean? Uh, paradise is a whole different story. You go to paradise and you have pleasure. One with God, I think we can be one with God in this world much more than we can be one with God in the world to come. When you do a mitzvah, you connect to God's desire. There's no greater way to connect to God than connecting to a person's desire. There's, and you know that from your relationships. I can buy my wife flowers and make her happy. That's a way of connection. 
But it makes her even happier if she asks me, please, I want you to clean the dishes today, and I do it. It's less pleasant, but it's a deeper level of connection. Why? Because I'm connecting to her desire, to her very desire. That's what mitzvahs are. God says, I want you to do this. And the level of connection we can have to God when we perform a mitzvah is much higher than any level of connection souls can have in paradise. This is also why uh, when you enter a cemetery, if you wear tzitzit like I do on the outside, the reason people do that, by the way, is because on, in the Shema prayer, the very third paragraph, there is a commandment that says, You should see them, see them, see the tzitzit, and you will remember the commandments of God. So some people wear it outside to see it all the time. You don't have to, but whatever. But if you are someone like this, some crazy dude like me, then uh, when you walk into a Jewish cemetery, you know what you are commanded to do? Tuck them in. Why? Because the souls of the deceased that might be hovering over graves or that might be there connecting to your soul, you came to visit them, so they're coming to visit you, are seeing that mitzvah, and they're jealous of that mitzvah. They wish they can have this level of connection with God that you are having in this world. They can't. They can't wear that tzitzit in the world to come. So we tuck them in not to make them envious. That's the idea. That's the big idea. But, yes. Go ahead, Shmo. Go ahead. I like that. Okay. Because you just reminds me more than it reminds me. Oh. <laughs> That's true. No doubt. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, thank you. You're right. Look, I, I, yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's like a uniform. Yeah, all right, thank you. Okay, okay, um, so that's, that's reincarnation. Now, I do want to speak about one more topic and then wrap it up, maybe some of your questions. Um, but I, I, I'm asked this often, especially as a rabbi who needs to deal with deaths, unfortunate deaths, some are very unfortunate. And the question is then what? We touched upon that with the Kaddish, with the text of the Kaddish, the text of the Yisko that are brought right here. But I want to speak about the idea of resurrection and uh, the idea of how souls resurrect in our dreams through certain signals. And they are finally completely resurrected eventually when Mashiach, the Messiah, will come. And that's again one of the 13 principles of faith when we believe that uh, when the Messiah will come, the dead will come back to life in this world. Um, that's the general belief. Again, it's beyond our intellect, and that's why we need faith to believe that. Uh, but it's one of the 13 principles of faith of Maimonides, but, uh, and it's spoken about a lot. But I want to speak about the, the minimal ways of resurrection that the souls uh, choose to, uh, to follow from time to time. Um, Dreams are one way in which souls appear to us. Um, but there are many other ways. The Tsar, and I wish I had brought more references here, but the Tsar speaks of birds as carriers of souls. Birds as carriers of souls. And uh, sometimes uh, you may notice, I've noticed that many times. I've officiated weddings where a bird all of a sudden landed on the chuppah canopy. 
And in my mind, it may just as well be the souls of the relatives of the bride and the groom that are coming to celebrate with them. Birds are carriers of souls. There are ways in which they, they communicate with us here in this world, resurrecting our minds and in our imagination. Yes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was on my way to Chicago because my mother was sick. Mm-hmm. A few days post-death visit by the owl. That's really weird. So I looked it up. I'm, I Googled it. It said that owls came because I had a mission. It wasn't to be comfortable knowing that my mission was going to be fine, that my mother was going to be fine. And they would take that. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, 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 right. Again, it's a question of belief. I don't know if we can prove this. This is not a scientific class. It's a more of a mystical class. But again, speaking of the very fundamentals of faith. Uh, and then another way, and there are many other ways we can speak about this more, but another way is not through tangible things, but rather through thoughts. And you can try this on yourselves right now if you want. But try and stare at someone. Maybe not right now. Try and stare at someone. And that someone should not be looking at you. You'll see that after a few moments, all of a sudden, that person will turn towards you. Yeah. Now, how did he know? He wasn't uh, looking at you. Because your stare awakens their stare. In a way, that's how souls also communicate. When you think of a soul, you ponder on a soul, it's because that soul is staring at you. And that evokes a thought of the soul in you. Sorry? Eyes are the windows to the soul. That's right. That stare. Very good. But that's, that's another way in which souls uh, uh, relate to us, speak to us. Uh, and again, they can do that because it's a soul-to-soul connection. Now, they don't connect to this chair or to this table, but they'll connect to souls. That's, that's ways they communicate. Now, I will share with you a story and... Uh, hopefully this story will also bring some light, shed light on this question of then what? What do the people that are left in this world do after the death of the beloved ones? This is a story that uh, is, has been documented. That occurred not too long ago in 2012. I've told this story many times, but it's a story uh, that really moved me, and therefore I will say it again. Um, it, was, it happened with a group that's called Right for Israel. Uh, right for Israel, right on. right on for Israel is uh, spelt, you know, W-R-I-T, not R-I-G-H-T. But it's a blessed initiative uh, that takes about 50 uh, uh, college students from America and brings them to Israel, educates them for six weeks about Israel, about the politics of Israel, the history of Israel, and so on. And then after six weeks, our high school students... And after six weeks, they, decide, they asked them to write essays and become these young ambassadors for Israel. Fine. There was a group of Ride On for Israel. I don't know if it was in your son's uh, class or not, Hannah, but uh, that visited Israel in 2012. At the very end of their trip, they decided to go and visit Mount Herzl, where all of the soldiers that were killed, the idea of soldiers that were killed in battle, are buried. And the prime ministers, or at least some of them, and, and so on. 
When those students are there at Mount Herzl, one of them, her name is Daniela Greenbaum, she looks around and she sees an older couple crying at this grave. So she decides to approach them. And she asks them, is everything all right? Can I help you? And they say, you can't really help us. But this grave right here is the grave of our son. Your son, what happened? And they tell her, well, our son died in an accident. His tank was flipped over. He died, and since then we've been devastated. And the mother, her name is Ptina Derry. She says, um, not only have I been devastated, but uh, I've been inconsolable. Until last night. And that's why we're here today, she, they tell Daniela Greenbaum. Last night I had a dream. In that dream, my son said to me, stop being so sad. So I responded, but my dream, son, was to bring you under your chuppah, to have you get married, escort you under that chuppah canopy. Now I can't do it anymore. And the son in the dream tells his mother, but mom, you can do something else under a chuppah, and that will be as if you brought me under my chuppah. What's that something else in Judaism that you do under a chuppah? That's dedicating a Torah scroll. When you dedicate a Torah scroll, you dance in the streets under a chuppah. So if you dedicate a Torah in my loving memory, then it will be as if you brought me under my chuppah. The mother is encouraged by this dream. She wakes up and she says, well, yeah, that's a great idea, but I don't have the money for a Torah. That's $35,000. So I came here. She tells us, Daniela Greenbaum, to pray to my son to try and help me get these $35,000. Daniela Greenbaum says, one second. She goes back to a group. She says, look, there's 50 of us. The math is very simple. If we each give $750, is that what it is? $750? Yeah, it's too late uh, to be calculating this. Then we can buy her a Torah for $35,000. Some, uh, they all pledged to give her that sum. Some gave it on the spot. Some uh, sent checks when they came back, credit card numbers and so on. After a few months, those 50 students came back to Israel to celebrate the dedication of a Torah in loving memory of Gidon Derry, the son of Plina Derry, who uh, was killed. At that celebration, the mother took the microphone and she said, for the first time in so many years since the death of my son, I feel as if a weight has been lifted from my shoulders. And I know that my son is just as joyful right now as he would have been under his own chuppah if I had the merit to bring him and, and, and marry him. Uh, I'm telling you the story because the then what, it shares two powerful messages, but one message is that the soul continues to be with us. There's no doubt. Again, through many ways of communication. And then what should be that, yes, we don't have a bodily connection, but we do have a soulful connection. Perhaps that soulful connection is stronger than it was in this world. The second thing is that uh, we should know that there is, um, you know, there are, are, are ways and actions to do in order to continue that level of connection. Uh, that mother gave a Torah. We can increase our charity, as the Yiskor prayer says. We can angerize God in other ways, but in that way, we will bring comfort not just to the soul of the deceased, but also to our very selves. Until we hope. Uh, for the fulfillment of the day until we'll see the fulfillment of the day in which the dead will be resurrected, as is our belief. They'll come back to this world and we'll reunite with them, not just with their souls, 
but also with their bodies. Thank you very much. Okay. Any questions? Let's see what time it is. I think we have time for two or three questions. Yes, Randy. Does Judaism believe in ghosts? Does Judaism believe in ghosts? Uh, good question. Not the ghosts that we see on TV. Uh, not the, uh, we believe in ghosts that existed. We do believe uh, Rashi writes that he expelled all ghosts from this world. Um, but we also believe that no matter if we do believe in ghosts or not, that the Jewish soul, our being, our actions, are so mo much more powerful than, than ghosts. Um, but Rashi expelled them. Yes? His name is Shmuel, and, yeah. Uh, and um, he was born May 27th, and somebody said to me, yeah, I was getting my nails done, whatever, how we are, and I said, uh, oh, what's your birthday? And I said, the son's birthday, and I said, May 27th, and they were talking about signs and everything, and they said, um, you know, oh, that's Gemini, the twins. <laughs> and the first time, I didn't even think about it before then, and they then it was Valentine's Day, so I filed that. Valentine's Day, and my son was, Casey was nine years old at the time, so this was the 10th. Mm -hmm. And he gave, and he puts a, a Valentine underneath the, the door, you know, kids. And I, I look at it before I open it, there's two hearts. Huh. And in the center is the word twins written. Mm. Mm. And I said to him, Casey, Oh, wow. There's the warm heart that likes to cuddle all the time, and then there's the quiet heart that likes to be himself. And mm. he's right at me. He says, you know, Mommy, like there's two of me. He knows the story. Wow. And I said, yes, like there's two of me. Wow. And I never agreed. Thank you for sharing. So Beautiful. There was no way that right. I had to say it felt like. Right. What's your question? Thank you. One more question. Yes. Right. Right, we shouldn't. Very good. I mean, we do believe in the power of mediums. Some of them, I think a lot of them are charlatans, but uh, yes. Um, uh, look, uh, we, but we're against it. Uh, there's stories in the prophets. Uh, with King Saul, for example, who wanted to, 
Yeah, exactly. Evoke the soul of Shmuel to see if he was forgiven. That's right. And and he was uh, he was he was uh, warned about it. Um, and you're right. I think primarily for that reason, souls want direct communication through dreams, birds, and so on. Not with mediums. Yeah. Sorry. Can it happen? It could. Could. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is it? What? What's the name of that? Okay, doesn't matter. The TV thing. Uh, all right. Yeah. Okay. Sure. We'll talk. We'll talk. Uh, we'll talk privately. But thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you've just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to Valley Beit Midrash to support the expansion of meaningful Jewish education. Thank you so much for listening.